Today's first reading comes from Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, Here, I, here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the hearts of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. We continue in John chapter 12 from verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. This is God's word. Morning, everyone. My name is Matt. If we've not met, let me lead us uh, once again as uh, we turn to this. Let me lead us in prayer. Almighty God, as we turn to a passage such as this, it's clear we need a grander vision of you. Would you help us see you more clearly this morning? Would you help us understand ever more why we need the Lord Jesus? Would you work that in us as we meet you in your word, we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've, uh, how many would have seen the um, uh, TV series, the, the Chernobyl, that was on a few months ago. Uh, I mean, extraordinary, really. Uh, I mean, harrowing, 
and yet voted, I think, sort of currently still viewed as the best TV show ever, according to IMDb. Um, but, um, of course, it's recording the events of back in 1986, which some, you know, will be able to remember fairly vividly, uh, when Reactor 4 at the Chernobyl nuclear plant exploded and uh, for a period of weeks, months, was pumping out the equivalent of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima every 30 minutes in terms of radiation for months. Uh, and it's about the uh, explaining what happened and um, the events of clearing it up. Uh, there comes a point, uh, I think it was episode four or something, but um, where uh, there is radioactive waste, there's a little graphite on the roof of reactor three. It is next to the main, next to the one that's exploded. And they somehow need to clear all this waste off into uh, the main reactor. And so they try various robots, um, 1986 sort of robots. Um, and uh, they break down. They have to sort of confess weakness and ask of the West Germans, look, can we have one of your robots because ours aren't working? It's humiliating for the great Soviet empire, but that breaks down. And in the end, they decide the only way they could have possibly clear this roof is with bio-robots, uh, humans. And I think it's undoubtedly the most harrowing bit of the whole series when they're given their instructions. Okay, you need to dress in these suits, these lead-lined suits with your respirators on. And you'll go onto the roof for 90 seconds, no more. A bell will ring at the end of 90 seconds and you've got to exit the roof because your body cannot stand any more than a minute and a half. And your job is to take these shovels and to shovel over into the open reactor, the graphite waste on the roof. Carry it, shovel it. Don't you look over the edge. Don't look at the reactor. Your body won't be able to take that. So just shovel and throw. And so you just see this scene, and it's, it's wordless, it's musicless, and you just hear the breathing of the men, their heavy breathing through their respirators, their panic as they're on the roof, the, 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 the almost inability to breathe because of the, 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 the levels of uh, poisoning in the air. And you see them with their shovels, their shovels getting stuck and melting and falling over in their panic. And then the bell rings, and 90 seconds they go back in. And this just gets repeated. Tens of thousands of men have their 90 seconds. And of course it was too much. And most of them die within a few years. It's a desperately harrowing scene. You cannot, cannot look into the open reactor. The maximum your body can last is 90 seconds, and even that wasn't actually true because it kills them mostly in a few years. I'd have to say, even though you're just watching a dramatization of events of decades ago, you feel really scared when you watch it. So there we go, there's some entertainment for you. But that is somewhat of Isaiah's experience as he encounters the Holy God. Chapter 6 and verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm ruined. 
I'm a sinful man and I've come before the Almighty God and I cannot withstand it. I cannot endure it. I cannot look at him. I will undo, I will be ruined. I am undone. I will come apart. It's terrifying, overwhelming for him. Now, if you're joining us, Isaiah 6 is the sort of turning point in this section. Uh, it depends how you divide up the book of Isaiah, but chapters 1 to 12, most would view as one section. And for five chapters, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, the Lord has said that Israel are corrupt. They're a corrupt people, and he's going to bring justice to them. And it's been fairly relentless. So if you were here last time, we finished on chapter 5 and verse 30. Here's what the Lord's judgment against a corrupt people looks like. Uh, in that day, uh, an invading army will enter the nation of Judah. They will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there's only darkness and distress. That was what was promised, darkness and distress. So it's been fairly relentlessly uh, tough, I guess, for the first five chapters, with glimmers of hope. So even amongst all the, the warning that they are going to be destroyed and judged, there are glimmers of hope. So the Lord had promised, chapter 118, he would wash them. Chapter 125, he would purge them. Chapter 4, verse 4, he would cleanse them. How are you going to wash, purge, cleanse this corrupt people so they can stand in your presence and indeed be useful to you, Lord? Here is the answer. Even though it's not fully explained. But the answer is, there is a way of having your sin atoned. And if it's true for the one man, Isaiah, there's hope for the nation of Israel, Judah. There's hope for you and me. So we're going to work through it like this. Uh, there's a, the holy God cleanses a ruined man for a tough ministry. Okay. The holy God, verses 1 to 4, he cleanses a ruined man in verses 5 to 7 for a tough ministry, it's fair to say, verses 8 to 13. Let's work through it then. First, then, there's um, the holy God, verses 1 to 4. What are we told? Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... Okay, pause. Uh, so here we are. It's about 740 BC. Uzziah has been on the throne for 52 years, so 52 years, that's the only king that most people in Judah would ever have known. And it's been glorious. I mean, he's undoubtedly the, the most successful king uh, that the whole nation has, perhaps bar Solomon, you'd say. Uh, so we're told that his fame spread as far as Egypt. He's brought unprecedented wealth, unprecedented success to the nation. And he's a good king. 2 Kings 5 will tell us that he did right in the sight of the Lord. So this is a much-loved monarch who has overseen a golden era of uh, Israel's history. So even in our own little pathetic way, uh, I don't know what most people will do when Queen Elizabeth dies. Uh, this sort of constant force or personality that's been there but you'd hardly say she's overseen a golden era economically. But still, when someone's been there for 52 years, in Uzziah's case, you don't want them to go. At the same time, the big threatening neighbor of Syria has been a sort of dormant giant. Well, they've got a new king. We'll meet him later on. Marvelously named Tiglath Pileser III. There's one for your children. Um, but um, uh, and all of a sudden, the threat of invasion is much, much higher. 
So the constant wonderful king has died and your neighbor is threatening you. So it's an unsettling period. That's what's going on. So it's a big year. But the Isaiah gets to see the Lord. Well, there are two things really emphasized about him, his transcendence and his purity. I guess in these first four verses, it's just his utter otherness, his transcendence. So Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. We're told that the robe, the, the train of his robe, you know, the bit that drifts off it, fills the temple. Well, the temple's quite a big building, I don't know, half, two-thirds of this, two-thirds of this sort of building, I guess, 60 foot, 30 foot, 45 foot. Um, and just the train of his robe fills the whole building. So obviously, the vision of the king himself, he's pretty big. He's going to be enormous. But we're not even told that. All Isaiah tells us about is, I saw the train of his robe. Yeah, okay, but what about the king himself? What about the Lord himself, Isaiah? He doesn't get any higher than the train of the robe. Because that in and of itself is enough unsettle him and leave him undone. Golly. You have got the uh, angels though, or seraphim, verse 2. Above him were seraphim, literally burning ones, uh, a word for angels, uh, each with six wings. Now they're angels, so they're not fallen human beings, they're not sinful, but still they cover their faces, they cover their eyes so they don't look upon the Lord. They cover their feet, a bit odd to you and me, but culturally, that's the sort of unsightly part of you. Uh, the feet, some may empathize with that, other, but it's this sort of bit you just culturally, you, you hide. So they don't look and they hide the bits they're most embarrassed about. And they fly and they fly around. Constant motion, flying uh, around the Lord. It's striking that they don't look, they're embarrassed, they cover their feet. These are angels. Makes you think, beginning of the gospel accounts, Luke chapter 2. Remember, a load of shepherds in a field. They see angels and they say, ah! I paraphrase. Um, but they, whoa, we're told they're terrified. So these shepherds, they see angels, they're terrified. The angels, they're in the presence of the Lord. They say, we can't look at him. We're embarrassed by who we are. And they're sinless. Well, for us to come before him, it's more than terrified. They're calling out to one another. Verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Their sole occupation, so it seems, is to declare the wonder of the Lord supremely. He is holy. In fact, he's holy, holy, holy. You know, the, some of you know this Hebrew just repeats word for emphasis. So you might want to say, rather, we say, oh, it was a torrential day yesterday in Hebrew. You'd say yesterday was wet, wet. Um, it was very wet. It's a superlative. It's most wet. Holy, holy, holy. Threefold? It's the only adjective in the Bible that you get the triple. 
sort of grammatically nonsense. It's a grammatical overstatement. It is, he's exceptionally, extremely, beyond understandingly holy. Because he's just different here. So transcendent, so other. And of course, when the Lord speaks to us and communicates, he he uses language that we can understand. It is as if God describes himself in baby language to us. Uh, And we see, I don't know, you, 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 you see something beautiful and you say to a toddler, isn't it pretty? Yeah, it doesn't quite do the Grand Canyon, the Blue Mountains in Australia. It doesn't quite do it. It's pretty. But, you know, they're toddlers. It's nice, isn't it, two-year-old? So God gives us language. He explains who he is. And yet, at the same time, the gap is vast. And if we think God is like me, but smarter. No, it's not good enough. He's like me, but older. Not not good enough. He's like me, but better. Not good enough. You can't measure him by any units that we use. You can't compare his IQ and, and ours, age and ours, weight and ours. You can't do that. It's just different, so completely on another level. Here I found, uh, um, you can't see it, it's a useless illustration, but um, I picked this up. Here is a, um, it's a drawing pin. Now, if I was to give you the challenge, how am I like a drawing pin? Can you list me all the points of comparison between Matt Fuller and a drawing pin? Old, bent, and a bit knackered. All right, all right, all right. The, um, uh, well, it, 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 it's got a leg, and you've got legs. It's made of stuff, and you're made of stuff. The points of comparison are, it's a thing, and you're a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, how, how do you compare the Lord Almighty with a human? Uh, uh. Well, he, he thinks and we think. Yeah, but not. How are you comparing? He communicates so we can understand some, of course. He gives us pictures so we understand him truly, but yet, don't shrink the gap. So you and I might think, um, oh, it's, uh, yesterday was a miserable day, wasn't it? And you start to think, Oh, if I had a bit of money, I'd love some winter sun. Oh, I'd love some winter sun. That's it. Um, 24, 25 degrees. Perfect. Who, no one needs it hotter than that. That's just perfect sort of temperature. So you think, that's what I want. And you go on holiday. And um, I don't know where you go on holiday. But somewhat surprisingly, it's the same temperature as the sun. And you're looking for 24, 25 degrees. And you get 10 million degrees centigrade. No thanks. I think I'll get a little bit burnt and worse. But you think, oh, you know, I'd like to meet God. Well, yeah, but he's not 24 degrees. He's 10 million degrees. Don't shrink that gap. He's not on your level. Do you really want to meet him as you are? He is overwhelming. Overwhelming. 
it here in Isaiah 6, we're meant to sort of, we're meant to feel the sort of raw, visceral weight of Isaiah encountering him and saying, no, no, I can't. He's the holy God. And yet he cleanses a ruined man, secondly. Verses 5 to 7, this holy God, he cleanses a ruined man. Well, Isaiah has the normal response, uh, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. Well, that's a common biblical response. So you might have um, have him even on the screen. Daniel 10. Daniel stands before the Lord. And Daniel says, well, I said to the one standing before me, I'm overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord. I'm helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. He's overwhelmed. Or Simon Peter meets Jesus and says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. He just falls down. Revelation 1, John sees Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's what people do in the Bible. They, they meet, and even these, it's Jesus. It's a sort of veiled glory of the Lord. And they just go, oh, that's it, and fall down. Just seeing some. Well, Isaiah sees some. We're only told he sees the train of the road. He collapses and says, verse 5, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm ruined. A little bit like the, the man who pours all he's got into his business and mortgages the family home beyond any wise level and then is bankrupt and says, I'm ruined. I have nothing. Or the family who walk back to their car and they just, oh, there's been some sort of electrical fire. It's just a burnt shell. It's ruined. Or as it used to be translated, Isaiah said, I'm undone. That would be a good translation. I've come apart. Like a wool jumper, you just start pulling at a strand, and before you know it, it's just a ball of wool on the floor. Undone. Isaiah says, I'm like that. I've just come apart at the seams because I've seen the Lord. I'm ruined. Why the focus on the lips? I don't know. Uh, we can only guess at that. I guess biblically they're always an expression of the heart. Isaiah is going to be a spokesman for God. There may be something in that. But more obvious is the fact that he says, verse 5, woe to me. If you hear last time, chapter 5, he pronounced repeated woes upon Judah. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Woe to, to me, he says. Because it isn't just God's transcendence that unsettles him. It's God's moral purity because he says, woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. He, he sees things truly. Now, I guess commonly we'd say, oh, I've been convicted of my sin, perhaps if you're a Christian, you say, oh, I was really convicted this week of 
lying at a low level, convicted, I get angry too quickly. And, and that's entirely right and appropriate and true. But there's a deeper conviction Isaiah has here of, in my essence, I'm utterly corrupt. There's nothing I do which is pure. Who I am is sinful. He sees that, well, for him to try and come before a holy God is like a human standing before an open nuclear reactor. We come undone. Our bodies, and you see it pretty miserably in Chernobyl, disintegrate. Some of them really very quickly and fall apart. Most of us, of course, are nice people. But fundamentally, we're unclean. We're morally corrupt. We don't like to admit it. But when you come before the blazing light of the holy God, utterly exposed, So this ruined man is cleansed. Verses 6 and 7. They're the ones that bring hope. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Well, that seems very simple. There's some strange things here, of course. Um, it's a picture of what's taking place. I guess here Isaiah hasn't actually asked for help. He just says, he despairs before God. But the Lord says, well, uh, here is, I've not actually revealed myself to destroy you. I've revealed myself to save you, to redeem you. And here is an act of pure grace. It's not even asked for by Isaiah. One of the seraphs then he brings a live coal. Well, I, probably therefore from um, in the temple. Uh, outside the immediate temple and in the courtyard of the temple, there's a massive bronze altar. It's five meters by five meters by three meters tall, big old thing, always having sacrifices on it. If you've done something wrong, an animal is sacrificed for your sin. So there will be coals. So a coal is brought from the place of sacrifice, the place where atonement is made, the place where something pays the penalty uh, a lamb, as we saw earlier, perhaps, or a goat or a bull. A, a creature play, pays the price for your sin. A coal is taken from there. This is brought to Isaiah's lips, and he's cleansed. Well, that must be symbolic. You take a burning coal and put it on your lips. They're not clean. They hurt. Vaseline is what you want for your lips, not a burning coal. So it's clearly symbolic. It is where it's come from. You get a, um, you're a driver, and unless you've moved house recently, you're, you're a driver, and you uh, post comes, and you flick through the post, and one of them is stamped DVLA Swansea. And you think, I know what that means. There's only one thing that comes to me from DVLA Swansea, unsolicited. It's a penalty point. It's, as they love to call them, an enhancement on my um, driving license. Never understood that as a phrase. 
But if you, if something comes from DVLA, there's only one, you know, that is the source of penalty points. If something comes from there, that's what it is. Uh, coal comes from the place of atonement. You know what it is. It's for atonement. It's to take guilt away. It's to atone for sin. Strike the angel can't even carry this coal. Has to use tongs. A strange detail. In other words, this is something special going on here, I think. But of course, the, the wonder, the joy comes in verse 7. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Atoned? I think we sort of know what that means. You make atonement for something. You, you, you pay. Uh, the, the root of the word literally to pay a ransom or to cover over a mistake. In the sense of um, you, go for, you go for dinner at a restaurant, you and your family, and maybe some friends, or you and a gang of friends, you go for dinner at a restaurant, and um, you know, everyone's in this, you know, we just have a main course, don't want to get too expensive. Uh, ha ha, everyone goes, oh, well, you know, while we're here. And um, there's sort of starters and, and pudding, and um, uh, we'll all have a drink, shall we? Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, so there's what, I know, six of you and the bill, this is a much nicer restaurant than you realize. There's six of you and the bill is a thousand pounds. But, you know, this is sort of, oh, the bill, can we have the bill? Oh, and um, this is just, whoa, you know, who's, well, I've got a couple of buttons in my pocket. Will they help? And, um, uh, and then the person on the table next door sees your distress and wanders over and says, I'll cover it. I'll pay. I'll cover it. That's this word. I'll make atonement for it. I'll pay what you cannot. The living God says you're unclean and undone because of your sin, but I'll pay, I'll cover that. And this is such a strange picture. But it becomes much clearer in the New Testament. And as we had read earlier, still there on the, um, the front of your sheets, in the language of Hebrews chapter 10. Well, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. This is a strange picture that Isaiah gives us, but it's always pointing forward to a true reality. that the Lord Jesus says, I'll cover it. I'll make atonement because I'll pay for all your sins myself. I'll pay for them when I die upon a cross so that you can be cleansed. It's always what Isaiah was looking forward to. Presumably that is why, in part, you get the extraordinary comment in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, that we had read, that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. That's a very strange sentence for John to put in. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Well, there's no hint in Isaiah chapter 6 that there's a six, or I don't know, whatever, five foot ten Palestinian man who grew up on Lake Galilee. There's no hint that he is there. 
But John says, no, no, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. In what sense? It's not super clear, but at least in this sense, Isaiah saw that actually this picture of the coal coming and touching his lips and lips and bringing atonement in some way was going to be achieved by God himself. How much did he see? Well, in the language of Isaiah 53, he saw that there would be a, a suffering servant who would come and make atonement for his sins. Isaiah knew that this picture was always looking forward to the work of Jesus Christ. It is only faith in the death of Jesus. It's the only way to have guilt taken away and sin atoned for. The only hope for men and women of unclean lips and unclean hearts is the atonement, the cost-paying blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy God cleanses a ruined man uh, briefly, because you get more of this in chapter 7 to 11, but briefly for a tough ministry, uh, verses 8 to 13. Verse 8 is the first time the Lord speaks in the passage. Uh, perhaps the, the voice would have just been too much, but now as a man who has been a, has a, a, a known atonement, Isaiah can actually hear the voice of the Lord. Verse 8, I heard the, I, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here am I, send I, I said. We're not told in what tone he said that. I think he's normally presented as a, here am I, send I. Uh, I think that's probably unlikely given his experience, but I am thankful for what's happened. Send me. And the Lord says, okay, it's going to be a tough ministry, Isaiah, verse 9. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand what with their hearts, turn and be healed. You go and preach, Isaiah, but I have to tell you, your preaching will harden people's hearts. You're going to get a negative response. Because here is a people who have done wrong and will face judgment. Well, the original audience, they would be invaded by Assyria. That's a bit of a tangent, but let me just say, there's nothing uh, blameworthy. You can't criticize the Lord in any sense for this. I remember uh, a few years ago being with a friend, and we walked into his living room, and there was his son, Neil, on the sofa, and uh, with a big rip down the sofa. And um, it was obvious that Neil had ripped the sofa. You didn't need to be Hercule Poirot to work it out. Because when we'd left the room about five minutes earlier, Neil was playing with his dad's Stanley knife. And his dad is pretty casual about such things, uh, but said to him, look, just be careful with the knife, Neil. Don't do anything stupid with it. And uh, I think he was probably thinking, like, take your own thumb or, you know. But to the, uh, who else was in the room? No one. We exited the room, no rip. We returned to the room, rip, and there's a boy with a Stanley knife. Neil, did you rip the sofa? No. I think you're lying to me. I'll give you another chance. Neil, did you rip the sofa? No, you've lost one week's pocket money. Neil, did you rip the sofa? No, you've lost two weeks' pocket money. Neil, did you rip the sofa? No, you've lost a month's pocket money. Neil, did you rip the sofa? And you know what happens when you lie. Did you rip the sofa? No. Two months' pocket money gone. At that point, Dad decided, let's the whole thing calm down. For a little while, and he did later admit 
was him. There's nothing wrong with dad's preaching at that point. Perfectly reasonable question to which he knows the answer. And he's giving his son the chance to do the right thing. But the perfectly reasonable words just entrenched Neil in his crime. There's somewhat of that sense here. Isaiah preaches very reasonably, turn back to the Lord. But upon a sinful people, they just get more stubborn. And they say no. Jesus quotes it in John 12. I think he quotes it in a sort of broader context in Matthew 13 and says, this sort of response will happen whenever I teach in parables. So in a derivative sense, I I think you'll still see this today. So we don't have a divine word on it, but maybe some of the mission partners we support when they're preaching in Muslim countries and this will be the response they receive now maybe, don't know but Isaiah is not called to a very fruitful ministry Isaiah go and preach for the rest of your life and no one will listen to you okay Lord that's what he's told to do there is hope verse 13 Oh well verse 11 Isaiah says how long Lord and well Devastation will come, is 11 and 12. Assyria will invade. But verse 13, though a tent remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. There will be some remnant. But you get to chapter 11, you get a bit more detail on it. But from this stump will come the Messiah. Because at this stage in Isaiah, he's warning them constantly, well, judgment will come, but there is hope. Keep trusting in the salvation to come, the Messiah to come. But look, what do you and I do with Isaiah chapter 6? The holy God, you meet him, be overwhelmed. That is rightly our response, be overwhelmed. But he cleanses a ruined man, so be thankful. Because even though he's overwhelming, we can know him through the Lord Jesus Christ in the atonement he's won for us. Or for a tough ministry, well, maybe we need to be realistic. But when you think of the Holy God, be overwhelmed. And when you know that he cleanses a ruined man or woman like you, be thankful. And let's not think he's too small. Let's not shrink the gap between us and the Lord. Idolatry is just unworthy thoughts. Having too small a picture of God, that's idolatry. Don't think you can wander before him. He's not 24 degrees and very pleasant. He's 10,000 degrees. And unimaginable. This holy God be overwhelmed. But he does offer atonement. So through the Lord Jesus Christ you can know him. You can come before him. In the language of the Bible you can see him face to face. So be overwhelmed and be thankful. But be both. When you come before the holy God.
Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, would we hold these two things rightly together? That you are a holy God, overwhelmingly powerful and different and other and transcendent and high and exalted. You are not like us. You would overwhelm us, crush us. We would say, woe to me. We are men and women who are unclean. And yet we can come before you. We can even call you Father. Because Jesus has covered the debt of our sins. And he has made atonement for us. And we praise you for it. Help us rightly hold these things together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.